Welcome to the Humanizing Work Show podcast, where we dig into topics large and small related to our mission, which is to help make work more fit for humans and all of us humans more capable of doing great work. You can learn more about humanizing work at humanizingwork.com. Hiring is hard everywhere. It's one of the more intractable challenges in the business world. According to Glassdoor, it takes an average of 23 days to hire a new employee, and some surveys indicate that almost half of new employees fall through within 18 months. Even giant companies like Google, who have studied correlations between tens of thousands of interviews and what turned out to be good hires, have thrown their hands up. According to Laszlo Bach, former senior VP of People Operations at Google, who led their study, it's a complete random mess. And those statistics barely tell the story of what's so hard about it, especially for companies who are trying to build a unique people-centric culture, like the subjects of this episode. Now, this episode has a ton of really interesting content, and it's longer than our typical episode, so we want to give you an overview of what to expect. We'll start by introducing you to the leaders at the center of the story, Hart and Annette, and their company, Therispecs, since that sets the scene for what they did and why. They'll talk about the unique culture that they're trying to create and why that makes hiring particularly hard. Then they'll share the story of how they broke through that hiring challenge with plenty of detail on how they hire today. We'll then give a really brief executive overview of their entire hiring process. So if you just want the basics of this unique model for hiring, feel free to jump ahead to that section about 80% through the episode, then back up to review the details later. Finally, at the end of the episode, Hart and Annette will share some of the remarkable and unexpected benefits they've experienced by developing this approach, their advice for someone who wants to get started with it, and why this whole humanizing work effort is worth it to them. Part one, we need a new lens, the birth of Therospecs. So I started Therospecs uh, because my wife has chronic migraine and has four years, and we had tried um, any number of solutions to try to uh, alleviate them and, and, and make her feel better. That's Hart Schaefer, founder and CEO of a company called Therospecs. I first met Hart when we worked together at a Scottsdale startup called Centrillium Software, where we were part of the team that made an audio editing program called Cool Edit Pro. Hart's wife, Carrie, is one of an estimated 148 million people that suffer from chronic migraines. Now, many of us have suffered from an occasional migraine, and they're often debilitating. But chronic migraine is a condition where the person suffers 15 or more migraines per month for more than three months. Carrie's migraines, like many people's, were often triggered or made worse by light. And it was actually during a trip to the Mayo Clinic where she was seeing a neurologist um, where she was wearing her sunglasses and the neurologist said, hey, I totally know why you're wearing your sunglasses to this appointment, um, but wearing them indoors can actually make your light sensitivity worse. Um, and, but then he told us about this tint that, that he had read about um, that had been shown to help people like her with the light sensitivity. And uh, we thought this sounded really great and started to do research online. And, and finally, um, it, it was just, it was very difficult to actually get a pair that, um, that had this tint. Um, and when we finally found somebody who would make us a, a tinted pair of glasses, we got them and the lenses were good, but the frames just, they let in a lot of light. They were really cheap and flimsy. And I remember looking at it and thinking, um, I don't know anything about glasses, but I could do better than that. And so he did. Initially, Hart just wanted a better pair of glasses for Carrie, but Hart's a product guy. And pretty soon it grew beyond just fixing Carrie's problem. 
I started looking at different uh, different frame styles and, and materials and things like that. Um, and eventually just created her a prototype pair or what became the prototype pair of specs. Um, and she loved them so much. They were so helpful for her that we made a few more pair for some other people that she knew in the migraine community um, who had similar problems. And when their feedback was really over the top, um, I thought, I don't know if anybody else is going to do this right. I think this is something that that I need to do is is to make these and get them to market and, and find the people who could who could get so much benefit from them. I always thought I was going to start a company. I'm an entrepreneurial sort, and um, even even as a as a teenager, um, I just always thought it was going to be a software company because that's what my background is. Uh, it was really though just having this come along and seeing the problem, um, seeing how hard it was for us to get. Uh, the glasses for Carrie to begin with, um, I, it just became the problem I thought I needed to solve. Hart has led product development in different organizations for many years. And he created Theraspecs to provide therapeutic blue light glasses for conditions that are triggered or worsened by light. Things like migraines, but also other conditions like concussions and photophobia. Theraspecs is a small, purpose-driven business. As Hart started to discover how to make Theraspecs a viable business, he ran into a dilemma. He had started the business to solve the problem of making nice glasses that helped with the light sensitivity Carrie and millions of others experienced. That tapped into what he loved to do, create new products that worked. Once that problem was solved, he wasn't sure he wanted to keep running Theraspecs. There just wasn't a lot more to do in that space from a product standpoint. There was a big part of my brain, the product manager part of my brain, that started to say, this is a solved problem. Go find a new problem to solve. And intellectually, I knew that the problem was far from solved. We had the product. It worked. We were getting great uh, feedback from people. But there were so many people out there, not just with migraine, but other conditions, post-concussion syndrome and things, that, um, that really needed what we did and just didn't know that we existed. And so actually reaching them was the next problem we needed to solve. And so framing it that way in my own brain uh, was really helpful. Um, but even then, that was, you know, sort of purely intellectual, I guess. Um, and I needed something else that was a driving force that I really felt connected to. Um, and that's when I started to uh, think a lot more mindfully and specifically about the kind of company that I was building and wanted to build. One of the reasons I wanted to start a company at all was because I thought that there was a better way to do things. We didn't have to be as adversarial between management or ownership and employees that the way basically that we manage people and manage the work uh, could be better. And um, I really started to think about the thing I was building now was the kind of company that I always wanted to see exist and that I could, I could contribute to um, that would be more human-centric. This idea that the company culture is the next product to build is one that we hear from several executives, especially as their companies start to grow. In the many conversations that Hart and I have had about this idea over several years, two things stand out in his approach. First, Hart took a very mindful and deliberate approach to creating Theraspect's culture. He and his COO, Annette Zinke, who you'll hear from in a moment, created what they called the Working Agreement for Theraspect's. It's a pretty detailed document that describes the company's decision-making process using something called the advice process, as well as things like roles and responsibilities. Second, Hart really wanted to prove a point with Theraspects. 
most of the companies that we read about or, or that you hear about that are taking this kind of forward-thinking approach to developing their culture are tech companies. They're bringing in Ivy League employees. They're well-funded. And Hart wanted to prove that you could create the same kind of high-engagement culture even when most employees are stocking shelves or filling orders or answering customer support calls. There was at least anecdotal evidence that this kind of thing worked when you're paying people a lot of money. But what about the vast majority of businesses that weren't doing that? Hart wondered if Theraspects could be a model for the rest of us, proving that no matter the context, you could have business success and create a culture that was engaging and meaningful where people could really thrive. That was a big challenge, and he needed some help to do that, which is where Annette comes in. I was running a network of business incubators at the time and um, started based on the companies that I was working with, they all wanted to feel more confident in their product market fit. And so I started asking around in the community, the startup community and, um, you know, kind of the Arizona business community who, like, who are the people you know who are really good at product market fit? And uh, a few different people mentioned Hart's name to me. And um, I had talked to multiple people about why and they just said, there's just like, he just really gets it. And the way he explains it makes perfect sense. And like the light bulb always goes on. And so I uh, tried getting in touch with him. And- Annette hired Hart to build a program on product solution fit for the startups in her incubator. They worked collaboratively to develop the right content for the workshop. And Annette was really impressed with Hart's approach to business. And it turned out to be one of the best things that we'd done, the companies that went to this program, they all said, this was fantastic. I know exactly what to do with this information. I feel really good about how it can change what I'm building. I got to see a side of company building that I really hadn't experienced myself. I started my first company in my 20s, but uh, it was very uh, much figuring it out how when I went along. Um, I made a lot of expensive mistakes, and education is expensive no matter how you get it, but it probably wasn't the best way to learn those things. So it was really, um, it was interesting to see uh, how somebody was building a company that was different and the ways that we agreed on those things. Hart and Annette stayed in touch over the next few years. Hart building out Theraspects and Annette working with the incubator and then taking on some senior leadership roles in other organizations. Theraspects was still pretty small at this point, just a few employees, when another opportunity to work together presented itself. We had talked periodically about some of the things that came up in company building because we found out that we had similar mindsets about these things. Um, And I decided to leave the job that I was in. And he said, well, you should come over and help me build this thing. And I thought, you don't really need me. (laughs) Actually, I think that your first response was something along the lines of, that's cute. Um, And uh, because if Theraspects wasn't very big at this point, and I had a real sense that it could be much bigger, um, but it wasn't there yet. And uh, but I kept thinking about the the conversations that Annette and I have had, and how our values aligned, and how uh, she'd be another leader who could really help me in this quest to build a more human-centric place to work. For me, at least, um, an aha moment was uh, when Hart and I had a conversation about 
not wanting to be the only person in an organization that makes a decision. So I've been in a lot of organizations where the person at the top is the one with the big brain that makes all the decisions. And then you have all of these brilliant people in the rest of the organization who are kind of bottlenecked by that one person at the top. Um, you know, when the buck stops here, all the decision-making stops there too. Uh, and so it seemed like there was a better way to do that, where you could engage all of the brains in an organization and get a much better outcome. Because I would put, uh, I would put 10 brains against one, no matter how big that one brain is. Annette saw that Hart wasn't just trying to add more operational leadership to his very small company. He was trying to build a new kind of culture one that was fully aligned with her own values and desires to do something meaningful in that space. As they began growing as a company, they realized it wasn't going to be easy. They started discovering that the people they'd hired often struggled to work the way they imagined people wanted to work. Part two, the struggle is real. Hiring issues at Theraspects. Well, we had this idea of what we were trying to accomplish, what we were trying to do with our um, systems and processes. And, and we kept hiring, or we had several experiences of hiring somebody that we thought was going to be great, that seemed awesome in the interview process and um, gave us all the answers we were looking for. And then we would get into working with them and um, they weren't engaging with either their job or the processes that we had really set up. Uh, in the way that we had hoped for. And this was baffling in, some, in a lot of ways because people would express their desire for more autonomy, more decision-making, and then we would present this all these ways that they could actually do that. And we found a lot of the time people would back away from that and, and not engage with the ways that they uh, could actually take that on. We are hiring incredibly smart, talented, capable people that don't necessarily have experience in doing what we're asking them to do, either from a culture perspective or from an actual job tasks perspective. The theme here like, is about the autonomy, but I think yeah. that it goes both ways, that we're asking people to do things that they like they work in an environment that they're not accustomed to and to do jobs that they don't have direct experience in it's a lot of responsibility and the only thing that interviewing tells you is whether somebody's good at interviewing that quote probably resonates with every hiring manager ever for hart and annette they really wanted people to take advantage of the high level of autonomy that they offered at Theraspects, any employee can make any decision by using something called the advice process, meaning that they share that they intend to do a thing, and then they simply seek the advice of anybody that might have expertise in that decision or might be impacted by it. And then they go make the decision. They don't even have to follow the advice. The core belief behind the advice process is that if people are seeking advice and really listening to it, they're likely to follow that advice if it makes sense to them. So anyone at Theraspects could make any decision, including purchasing things, changing the design of something, changing a process, really anything. They just seek advice and go do it. And what Hart and Annette found was that some people just never used the advice process to do anything. They just did their jobs the way that those jobs had always been done. And other people would use that high level of autonomy to hold on to decisions with a death grip. So they often had two not so great ends of a spectrum, neither of which are what they had hoped for. 
So we were wrestling with the interview process, not giving us the results that we wanted and uh, trying to find another way to find the people we were looking for that would blossom in an environment where they are allowed to make decisions and take the lead on things. Hart and Annette realized their hiring process wasn't working the way they wanted. And they did some really interesting things to make it significantly better. We are particularly excited to share their approach because we've both had mixed luck trying to hire great people. Sometimes we get it right, and we end up with a fantastic new person on the team. Other times, we think we have a great fit, but within a month or two, we discover that for one reason or another, the person isn't contributing the way we'd expected them to based on the hiring process. In the best case scenario, we can spend months coaching such an employee if they're open to it, and that's not always the case. In the worst case, we have to make the difficult and costly decision to figure out how to help that person exit the company in a way that still honors them as a valuable person who just didn't turn out to be the right fit for that role. It's one of the harder things to to deal with as a manager. And then we're right back to square one, starting the hiring process all over again. Hiring is particularly tough at the time we're creating this episode. We've been through the pandemic shutdown, the great resignation, and we're on the brink of a recession and rampant inflation. All of these conditions have made it especially difficult to hire. The stakes are especially high for small and medium businesses like Hart and Annette's company, because a single hire is so expensive relative to the overall cash flow of the company. A great hire can make a disproportionately large positive contribution in a small company, but hiring the wrong person is incredibly expensive. There are direct costs, like the time a company spends creating the job posting, filtering and interviewing candidates, and of course, the total cost of compensation for the employee. There's the time that leaders spend trying to help the employee get up to speed initially, and once they discover that they're not a great fit, trying to coach them. Then there are also less direct costs, costs that can be even worse than the direct ones, like the disruption that they can cause for their teammates, the cost of any mistakes that they make, and the cost of missed business opportunities. And often, the good employees have to work harder to make up for what a bad hire isn't doing, putting the business at risk of losing those good employees too. The thing that I realized was that it doesn't even have to be a terrible hire. It just has to be not a good hire. And um, you're introducing new friction along every decision that's being made, every action that's being taken. Um, And so that slows you down and that causes other problems all along the line, even if it's just not a great fit. Beyond even the direct costs of this, there's the opportunity costs. What could you have done if you had had the right person or if the team had been gelling? I would rather have, you know, be stretched a little thin to have an unfilled job than to make the wrong hire. Um, You know, a truly bad hire can be incredibly stressful for everybody. And even, you know, just a sort of bad hire makes everybody's job more stressful anyway. As we invested more and more time and energy into coaching and developing of the people that we did have, it just became exhausting. We were spending so much of our daily conversation and energy on figuring out how to uh, help people come into the kind of working uh, arrangement that we were hoping for and um, realize that this was just not sustainable for us personally or for the company. And, and it really sparked a feeling of despair in us for a while because 
Um, we had all these things that we wanted to do, the people we wanted to help, the actual mission of the company. And um, if we couldn't even find the people for the team that could work this way, um, would we ever find a way to actually work the way we thought we could and we wanted to? Um, or would we end up sacrificing the other mission of the company to help people um, in order to do that? And it just didn't seem like we had a solution that was going to be sustainable and scalable. And part of the reason that was a struggle is that I had this feeling that we could just give up on the human-centric workplace thing and just go back to a command and control kind of classic company structure and we would do okay. We would be able to um, meet the business goals and um, uh, you know, help the people that we're trying to help, like fulfill our mission. Um, and so it was a real struggle to, to decide, no, I really, I don't, like, I don't want to do that. This is one of the reasons I started a company was that I thought that, that, uh, that there was a better way to do things. Even being a benevolent dictatorship would make us the only decision makers. <laughs> The level of burnout was pretty obvious at this point. They began to doubt whether this whole crazy idea could even work. Thankfully, they're not really the kind of people to give up on an important goal. In an attempt to avoid burnout, they decided to take one more look at improving their hiring process. Maybe there was a way to find the people who were most likely to jump right in and contribute to doing things the Therispecs way. But could they really be the ones to find some breakthrough approach to hiring? Every company knows it's important, and it's hard. If companies with billions of dollars in the bank hadn't cracked the code, how are they going to do it? Part 3, Cracking the Code, How Theraspects Finally Broke Through. Having been a business owner and then Hart as a business owner, um, you know, we have this feeling of it being incredibly difficult to find somebody who cares about your business uh, as much as you do, but it's not impossible. There are hundreds, I don't, I don't even know how many books and videos and suggestions on, on how to hire and methods and all this. And, and we were talking like, are we really gonna come up with something better than all of the stuff that exists out there? Um, we didn't really have to come up with something new, but maybe we needed to find the piece of it, pieces of it that would work. Our hiring process at the time did a really good job at showing us the things that we did not want in a candidate, but not a great job at showing us what we did want. Yeah, I realized that we were sort of accumulating this list of things to watch out for. So something would happen at the company, we'd say, oh, we really need to look for that. Next time when we're hiring, we'd add it to the list. And then every time we were interviewing somebody, we we're basically going through this and thinking, well, do we, are they doing any of these things or do we see any evidence of these things? But it was all a list of negatives. It didn't have anything to do with, well, what did we want to look for? Yeah, it would be this long list of red flags. So one example of that might be that we'd ask about every job that they'd done in the past and they would complain about their old jobs, all of their old jobs, or all of their old bosses, and that person was an idiot, and this person, you know, was lazy. And the, there was this whole string of, okay, well, I see this pattern emerging of, you know, it always being somebody else's fault. And so we had this, you know, we had a collection of red flags, but it felt really disheartening to think, how do we know what to look for in a whole, see of what not to look for. 
we would identify things like what Annette was talking about. So maybe we would frame it as, oh, this person always sees things happening to them. They don't do things. And so we're like, okay, well, what we're looking for is somebody who has an internal locus of control. They act on the world, right? And then we would encounter situations where somebody had too much of that. They would become, you know, as we've talked about before, like little mini dictators or, or just, you know, holding on to their work too hard and um, starting to order other people around. And so we're like, okay, well, that's not good either. So how do we find the balance? Like we, we clearly want somebody with an internal locus of control, but not too much. How do we define that? How, and then how do we find somebody even if we could define that? So uh, how about like an 87.3% internal locus of control? That's right. We actually wrote that down when we were doing this because we are maybe a little punchy at this moment, but we were saying, well, we want somebody with a strong locus of control, but not all the way because clearly that causes different problems. The internal locus of control is one example of a behavior that we didn't want, but there were lots of behaviors. The thing is that it was really tricky to find the inverse of that behavior. So how could we have an interview that showed us what we wanted to see that wasn't just uh, the person following the 10 tips to get hired and presenting themselves how uh, we wanted to see them without it being authentic. And that was, um, you know, that was the beginning, I think, of the search for um, how to see positive attributes in people that were um, indicative of the behaviors we wanted to see in real life once they started working with us. And not only did that start to solve the problem of only looking for a checklist of things to avoid, but we think it's a lot harder to fake evidence of something you have than to cover something up that you don't have or, or you know, try to hide something in the course of a short conversation, which is what an interview actually is. We had this revelation about uh getting really clear on what it was that we did want and we started to look at the traits that made people who were very successful in the company made them like that uh, and we read the book hiring for attitude uh, which then taught us that those things were called attributes for this purpose and it helped us get really clear on um, which attributes we wanted. And just the act of looking back at the people who were successful in the company and why, what it was about them that made them successful seems so obvious. Like we should have known to do that in the first place, but uh, that is the nature of a good idea, that it's only obvious in hindsight. Part four, it's the attributes, the characteristics of people who will thrive. So what is an attribute? As Hart and Annette describe it, an attribute captures a pattern in how a person thinks about themselves and how they approach challenges in their work. For example, at Theraspects, they eventually landed on four attributes. The attributes we ultimately landed on were team orientation, personal responsibility, mental modeling, and growth mindset. Team orientation really is about prioritizing the success of a team over individual accomplishment. And so you can imagine like on the spectrum of attributes that team orientation is at one end and maybe the superstar, you know, or the hero is at the other end. There are lots of companies that would do well to hire the hero. It's just not what we prioritize. Yeah, I always think classically of the like driven salesperson, like that would be somebody who is um, 
you know, I think classically would have an attribute that was not team orientation, and that would be fantastic for their role and the kind of and the organization they were looking for. Personal responsibility, I think of as the willingness and eagerness to actually jump in and make decisions and take that responsibility for the outcome onto yourself. And this is something that we're looking for all the time. Um, when we think about like, well, who wouldn't want that? Well, I, like a government organization or anybody who has a regulated industry where it would be very inappropriate for somebody to feel like taking that kind of initiative without consulting all of the relevant parties and you know doing the forms of triplicate would be incredibly inappropriate. With mental modeling, this is one where I think that the natural opposite is really not appropriate either. It's just that the absence of mental modeling is perfectly fine in most places. And so mental modeling really refers to your ability to hold kind of a concept of how something works in your head and carry that out to its second and third order implications. You understand how it works so you know what would happen if. And this is critical for us and anytime we're talking about having somebody take on responsibility and make decisions, this is about that idea of, well, if I do A, what's going to happen? If I do B, is A going to be better than B? Um, what do I expect it to look like? Can I look at a situation and say, that's weird? Um, which is, it turns out, like this incredibly valuable skill in spotting the things to even do in the first place. So I think one of the things about mental modeling is that it's just not necessary in a lot of jobs where things are um, either already routine or well-documented or well-understood. Uh, you don't need to have a predictive model for your decision-making because you know A or B is the right decision based on the situation that you're in because it's happened before. And what you really need maybe is um, you know, attention to detail or things like that that are a trade-off um, that, uh, again, might just be more valuable than the mental modeling in that situation. Well, in some of our attributes, though, I think it, it's reasonable to say that these are the most important for us, but it's not like because they're unique to us, they wouldn't be applicable to other companies. I mean, I think that there are some where the opposite would be desirable at another company and the rest where it's just okay not to have that in the top of your stack. One example of that would be growth mindset. And we think of growth mindset, right? This is the um, innate sort of or default orientation to yourself that you can improve and grow and your orientation to other people that they could improve and grow. And so this is the opposite of, oh, that person is really smart, is, is not a growth mindset, that that's a fixed attribute in their mind, that person is this way and it won't change, or they are good at this, or they, or I'm no good at blank. And um, for the way we're working, we really want people with this growth mindset because we do intend to have people um, in roles they've never done before, because nobody's ever done this role before. And it's not that other organizations wouldn't want this, but a lot of the time it's just not as important. Uh, again, if you've got fixed roles in your organization because of the bureaucracy or the regulation or any other purposes that you have, um, maybe it doesn't matter as much whether or not you think that, that person can get better and better, um, not just at the technical skill, but in the way that they think or something very broad that is often a popular culture thought of as innate. Um, it, it just won't necessarily have as an impact on whether the organization is able to function well. Well, and sometimes we see people who show a growth mindset about their own learning 
but not about other people. So other people are fixed, but I can change. And so I think that the two elements of that may not make it to the top of the list for other companies, but for us, both of those things are really important. Not only should I be able to learn, but other people can too. Yeah, it's like variation on a fundamental attribution error. An attribute should be a filter for a good fit at your company, not a generic description of a good employee anywhere. There are really two categories of attributes. Some attributes are characteristics that would be viewed as positive at any company, like personal responsibility, growth mindset, and mental modeling. Other attributes are more neutral, where the opposite of the attribute might still be a good thing, like team orientation. The neutral ones are particularly important, since they help clarify what type of people will thrive in your unique culture. Therospex wants people with a team orientation, and will pick people that have that attribute over someone with a high self-drive and technical expertise, if they don't have a team orientation. Another organization might prefer individual high achievers and find team orientation to be undesirable, not just unimportant. Even the ones that are always positive help describe the culture, since they've only picked a few attributes. At another company, growth mindset and mental modeling might be nice to have, but not the most important attributes. A different company might prioritize reliability and detail orientation, for example. It's not that Therospex doesn't want those attributes, it's just that they aren't at the top of the list. Therospex is willing to sub-optimize for reliability and detail orientation and a long list of other good things in order to optimize for mental modeling and growth mindset. Now, we said they eventually landed on those attributes because, unfortunately, they didn't ascend the mountaintop and receive them from on high. It was a long process that involved interviewing several people inside and outside the company to start to understand what helped people thrive at Therospex. We asked Hart and Annette to walk us through how they finally landed on those four attributes. Which brings us to part five, uncovering your attributes. To figure out our attributes took us months. And uh, we'd spent so long working on this that we knew we had to get it right. We couldn't mess it up. There's no menu that we could find of attributes to choose from. And even when we did find them, like, so we looked at Strengths Finder and other lists like that. And um, none of them felt right. Like they, they weren't encompassing the, the image that we had. And so I think that was one of our experiences as well is that process of um, refining to the point of actually having a short name for it was part of ultimately understanding um, what, what this thing was, what we meant by it. First, Annette and I just sat down and talked about people on the team, both past and present, and um, talked about who seemed like they were a good fit at Therospecs and, and really were um, you know, good at their job and uh, um, seemed engaged with our processes and seemed happy um, in, in, in those things. And, and so we made a list of those people and sort of talked about why we think or what about them seemed to make them successful. Um, and, uh, really just tried to address that. And, and for some people, we just said, you know, we don't know what it is about that person that, that maybe made them successful here or allowed them to be successful here, but there's, there's something there. Well, and it really came down to who was thriving. Like, how did we experience that? What did we see in them that made us think they were thriving? And then try to figure out if we could, um, even figure out why. With such a small company, there were only a few data points to work with. 
So Hardnanet expanded their evaluation to other people with whom they'd had a good working experience in other contexts. And this helped them realize that they were on the right track, since not everyone they enjoyed working with in other contexts had all the attributes that Theraspects valued. We thought it was a really good sign when we could think of multiple people that we really enjoyed working with. They just wouldn't be a good fit at Theraspects because really one of the things that the attributes should do is help us choose between two people neither of whom have any of the red flags, but this person is going to be a good fit at Theraspects and the other isn't. Part 6, Interviewing for Attributes Once Hart and Annette had the attributes, they needed to figure out how to ask good questions in interviews about the attributes. Just asking someone, tell me about a time when you've grown, would not be a good test for growth mindset. What they really needed were questions about situations the person had been in when there wasn't an obvious right answer, but multiple good answers. To create those questions, they went one level deeper, from the attribute, which describes how somebody thinks about themselves and their work, to the concrete behaviors people with that attribute might display. They started calling questions like this differential examples. And over the years, they've built out an entire bank of questions like these that they can puzzle into any planned interview for a particular job. So sometime during the process of defining our attributes and, and actually in describing who we thought was thriving at Theraspects, we started talking about the really specific behaviors that showed us that so that we could contrast them with behaviors that might be functional in an organization but would not display that attribute or would show something in, in the opposite. This, this, we ended up documenting this in what we uh, somewhere came across the differential examples. So somebody with this attribute and then examples and then um, somebody without this attribute and examples. So as an example of that, we have a question about, uh, you know, essentially something comes up to interrupt your work for the day, and you have these commitments to the CEO, to a customer, to another team, how do you, like, what do you do? We're going to pause for a moment and ask you, the listener, to think about how you'd actually answer that question. It's a situation we all find ourselves in pretty frequently. What do you actually do? How do you answer the question if you're interviewing for Theraspects? Knowing what you know about the Theraspects attributes, you might be able to invent an answer that hits those attributes well. But remember what Annette said earlier, it's much harder to fake having an attribute. A good answer to this question will include real examples of how the candidate dealt with the situation recently, and that's hard to fake. It's one of the really clever components of these differential situation questions. Okay, back to Annette. And so one situation, or one set of answers might include, I have a really strict hierarchy for the way that these people get answered. And then we wanted more of, uh, I'm going to think through how important each of these things are relative to one another and how much time I have and who I have flexibility with and who I don't, as opposed to the customer is always first or the CEO is always first. Or a, uh, I will stay as late as it takes to get everything done, period. Um, and a great answer that we would have preferred is, uh, well, I would talk to the people involved and find out which of these things are going to have the most impact if I don't follow through. And so that's sort of what we think of as part of team orientation. Um, not overwhelming and being too much on the personal responsibility where they're taking on that hero mindset where I'm just going to plow through it. 
We have this uh, kind of bank of questions that we've built up over time for different jobs, and they some of them are attribute specific, and some of them are job specific. Um, and in the attribute specific ones, we've highlighted essentially in the description of the question what attribute it seeks. And so we may have questions that are strictly about team orientation or are about mental modeling and personal responsibility. But we look at, let's say we have a few job specific questions already selected for the type of thing that we're hiring for. There will be elements of our attributes in those types of questions as well. So then we look at the attribute only questions to fill in the gaps so that we have a variety of questions looking for this for our core attributes for every candidate in each interview. And sometimes for some jobs, maybe mental modeling is extra important because it's an analysis job, right? And we really need somebody who has um, even above and beyond. So we might uh, float in two questions that get at mental modeling into you know, five or six questions for the interview. But all of these questions came um, and, and were created for the bank when we encountered other situations like, oh, well, we want to test for something and we can't. So how will we get that? What's the, what, what situation, um, either historical or uh, hypothetical, um, would elicit a different response from people? And then could we test it? Could we find out? Ask that question. If it worked well, it goes into the bank. With the attributes, behaviors, and differential questions ready to go in the question bank, Therspex was in pretty good shape. Part 7. Let's get it in writing. At that time, the first contact with a potential candidate was during a phone screening. Now, on the surface, a phone screening seems to be pretty efficient. They often lasted only 10 or 15 minutes. But once you add up the amount of time spent preparing for a call, capturing notes after the call, and then all of the scheduling logistics involved, they were taking a lot of time, and they weren't getting a high percentage of people making it past the phone screen. And around this time, my friend Marissa um, talked about her hiring methodology that she had developed while working at the University of Minnesota, which involved basically a written interview. She called it a screener, but it was you know, a set of five, six questions that she would have people answer and then have a really concrete rubric about, oh, this, this is the kind of answer that indicates um, somebody is meeting my expectations here or not. And I thought, wow, this is a really great fit for the attributes that we've come up with because we could come up with questions that helped us suss that out uh, very early on in the interview process. And also, um, the it would save us all that time that was being lost to um, those phone screenings that, that were not very productive and felt like we had to do for every one of the candidates who we came across. So another benefit of using that written interview process was that we could remove the bias from, you know, unintentional bias, but still bias nonetheless from having information about candidates in front of us while we review their answers. And so now the answers that come in are anonymized. And when you review the written interview, there's no information about who gave what answer. You just score it according to the rubric for everybody. The rubric that Annette mentions is another key component of the Therispex hiring process. It's a tool that interviewers use to help them score answers to the questions in the written interview. It's built into the question bank. So with the rubric for the written interview, the way we have it arranged is that an answer can either uh, fall below our expectations, meet our expectations, or exceed expectations. 
And um, for each of those possibilities, that scores either a minus one, a zero, or a plus one. And so at the end, when you sum up all of the answers for somebody, they might have a minus two or a plus one. That allows for multiple people to review the same answers from a single candidate. And what we can see very clearly is um, which candidates cluster at the top, right? And so sometimes for some jobs, the questions, we end up with a cluster between zero and one. And sometimes it's three and four. And so uh, one of the things we have to say a lot, especially when we're training somebody new on this, is meets expectations is meets expectations. Like that is good, right? So getting a zero is actually good. But we had three or four candidates that were even better than we expected. So that's, we'll select them out. And that'll be the handful of people that we um, end up inviting for an in-person live interview. Part eight, maybe I'm a little biased. As I listen to Hart and Annette talk about mitigating their own biases in the hiring process, it occurs to me that they're both product people at the core. And a big part of product development is trying to get beyond your own biases about how great your ideas are so that you can actually hear feedback from your customers that might teach you that you're wrong or that you're close but you need to pivot just a bit to get it right. In fact, the program that Annette hired Hart to build for those startups in her incubator was largely about that capability. How do we listen to what our customers are saying and test our ideas in a way that real information makes it through those many, many mental filters we have, our cognitive biases? I asked them how that product background influenced how they thought about building out their hiring process. Uh, yeah, I think that having a product development background absolutely played into this. We were really thinking about the process and what we we're trying to do as a product that is trying to solve problems for the user us and the rest of the team. Um, and, and we know that we all bring biases to things, that there's part of our monkey brain that's going to gravitate to something. It's one of the reasons why, you know, in-person interviews are pretty ineffective because like, what you're really deciding is, do I like this person? And that comes from all of these um, cues that happen in the first few minutes of the interview. That's why people say, oh, I can tell in the first few minutes. Well, it's because what they're reading is, is this person like me? Do they seem like the kind of person I hang out with and so on? Um, and, and these are terrible reasons to hire somebody, right? And everybody knows that if we say it out loud intellectually, but, um, this is the kind of thing that we're trying to fight. And so that's, uh, so we did a whole series of things. The, the rubrics, which we already talked about is one where it was very concretely the kinds of things that we're trying to look for. Uh, but there were countless things that we actually picked up and tried to do to address these issues. So some of the ways that we tried to remove bias were by the, using the rubric by testing the questions and answers uh, that were included in the screener with a whole range of people, people inside the company and people outside the company, so that we would have a whole slate of answers to decide, is this a good answer or a bad answer? Um, we anonymized the candidate information. We created differential situations so we could see where somebody with our attribute would answer in one way and somebody without our attribute would answer in another way, which still may be a perfectly acceptable answer. And we actually use those sample answers that we got from internal and external people as the basis of our rubric. Like this was, oh, if they say something like this and we were pulling it directly out of answers that we saw and, were, and, um, and we believed were um, like meet our expectations, exceeding them or below expectations. Um, that's how we uh, ended up framing, framing that rubric. The written interviews were way more efficient than phone screening, but scoring them was far from free. So rather than keeping the written interview as the first step in the funnel, Therospecs added a new step one to the process. 
When a candidate first responds to a job posting, Therispec sends them a short verbal reasoning test that they refer to as the screener. Which brings us to part nine, widening the funnel. We did discover that we had a pretty narrow funnel of candidates, um, people that were meeting our expectations on an initial review. And one of our current employees suggested that we open the doors very wide and say, just put everybody in the top and find some easier way to screen them out. And so we started with some of the um, assessments that Indeed had, mm-hmm. uh, but they were terrible. Um, and some of them you know, would be retired from the process. And so we developed our own verbal reasoning assessment. So for most of the jobs that we uh, bring in, we use the same assessment. And it is essentially just a basic logic can you understand uh, what's happening in a complicated sentence or description and answer a question based on that information? Early on, what was happening was that either somebody would get screened out, we were screening out most people in the resume review, oh, this person doesn't look like they have relevant experience. Um, or we, uh, in order to try to get around this, one of the earliest things we did was actually say something in the job posting like, um, uh, you know, and in your cover letter, uh, tell us a story about how you solve someone else's problem, right? And uh, the problem was we kept getting all of like the vast majority of resumes wouldn't do that. And in fact, wouldn't even have a cover letter. That's right. And it was in discussion with this, uh, one of our employees who said, you know, I, you know, it's a numbers game in, in hiring right now. And so um, people do just blast the resume out and maybe we shouldn't uh, discriminate against that behavior. And instead, start the process later than that. And so by adding the screener, we are able to basically say, does this pass even the remotest sniff test of somebody who's qualified? And if so, sign on the screener. And to be clear, the screener is not specifically about our attributes. Um, it's really, can somebody reason at all um, and think about this? And I think of it mostly as, is this person interested enough in this job that they're going to pause and take the five minutes to actually complete it? Um, and not just sort of almost semi-randomly click through the answers, but really consider it. And um, somebody who does, it takes five, ten minutes, and and that is enough of a screener to say, okay, this is a person who's serious enough about us that um, we're going to be serious about them and invite them to the written interview. Candidates who strongly demonstrate the attributes in their written interview get invited to an in-person interview. Part 10, and it's taking all my self-control not to sing this, let's get together. As you might expect, the attributes influence the in-person interview format too. But in the in-person interview, it's much more free-flowing than the written interview. Annette describes the in-person interview this way. We ask a lot of questions about job-specific skills in this one so that we have a little bit more experience hearing them talk about their actual um, behaviors in past jobs. And uh, we obviously ask a lot of questions about attributes as well so that we can make sure that we see when we really engage with somebody how they exhibit those things because it's um, easy to read into a written answer when you don't have the full context of a conversation with somebody. But we still have a rubric built for that so that we know you know, uh, an answer that meets our expectations has these elements and not just, I felt really good about that because somebody was charming or whatever it is about them that makes us like them. But I mean, we have had experiences of interviewing people where 
they never said anything concrete. We couldn't mark anything at all, but we thought, oh, that was really nice. And then look, and there's nothing to say about it. So we wanted to make sure to give examples of what a, an answer that met our expectations would include, or what would it take to exceed our expectations? What kinds of things are consistently below our expectations? So we built the rubric like that. And another thing that's, uh, that we do in the live interview that we don't in the written interview is actually we have the opportunity to ask follow-up questions. And so for every question that we have, we sort of suggest some possible follow-up questions or at least guidelines. And for a lot of them, it's the same thing. Like, you know, ask about a time that you applied what you learned in another similar situation, right? Um, yeah. which, which is a great follow-up in almost any of our questions. One of the other things that comes up a lot is that we ask, why did you approach it that way? Or... What made you think of that? Um, because we really want to get a sense of how people think. And so much in our attributes is really about the how people approach things, not even just exactly what they did. And so a lot of the time, the difference between somebody who is acting in our attributes and somebody who's not is uh, how they approach their why, what, what was going on in their head, which would be invisible in the description. And so we can ask those kinds of follow-ups. Um, and this is one of the reasons why the live interview uh, is not scored the way the written interview is. Um, we don't try to get to a numeric value in any way on any of the, the answers. Instead, what we do is we just start at the top and whoever was on the interview um, team, which is usually either two or sometimes three people, we don't give our overall impressions of the candidate at all. Uh, we just start with question one and then what did we say? What did we hear? What came up? And then after we've shared a little bit about that, um, we discuss the way we feel about marking um, on the, like what we heard as far as the uh, rubric goes. Um, and one of the reasons for this beyond just that we have follow-up questions and so we don't always know where it goes is that both the follow-ups and the way people answer questions, sometimes we're really looking for say, personal responsibility. And we got a little bit of that, nothing bad, but we got a ton on mental modeling. Um, and so we want to be able to capture that, even though there will be nothing in the rubric for that question about the mental modeling aspect, but it happens all the time that the stories people tell um, give us evidence uh, one way or the other for other attributes. Finally, candidates who do well in the in-person interviews get invited to a team interview. The team interview, however, isn't about comparing candidates. It's not a popularity contest. Rather, it's a last check with a focus on the team's working agreement. Part 11, the team interview. I think one thing that's important to note about the team interview stage is that there, at this point, there's no longer candidates being evaluated against each other. I mean, we may have more than one candidate who comes to the team interview stage, but generally this is a um, the hiring team is almost ready to make this offer and we want to um, have the, the broader team do a double check. But I would still say that, I don't know, half of candidates at this stage don't um, get an offer after the team interview, um, but it, we're not evaluating uh, two people versus each other. We're still a small enough team that we want everybody to have a chance to meet a candidate before we make an offer. And so uh, what we do is have the candidate come in um, one more time. And um, the first thing is that we share our working agreement with, with them beforehand. And the working agreement is where we document what are our processes? How do we use the advice process? What do we expect from people as far as this decision-making? Basically all of these things that we talk about um, in building a more human-centric workplace um, 
is outlined in the working agreement um, as concretely as we can we can make it. And so um, in the team interview, the first thing is Annette and I, and if the hiring manager is another person, that person sits down with them and asks them some questions about what they think of the working agreement, what stood out, um, what questions they have, what they think they might struggle with. Because now we're at the stage where, as an interview team, we really think that this person could be a great fit for Therospecs. But we want to know what's their reaction when they find out what's working at Therospecs going to be like. Our working agreement goes through how we make decisions and how we ask for advice and where, you know, who has what areas of responsibility and how we work together. Um, and sometimes we have learned from candidates that that can be really intimidating. Uh, we've, we've had candidates say, I don't think I want that kind of authority, um, which is, you know, I guess good to come out before you hire them. And there's also things like uh, candidates who don't really have any questions about it or think, well, that's very different and don't say anything versus a candidate who says, but how does this work like when I'm new and it's the first 90 days and I don't know anything yet? How can I possibly have? And, and that shows this, that's going to be an example of the kind of engagement that we're like, oh, this is really interesting. This is, this is interesting to them. They're trying to picture themselves and they can do it, but they're trying to fill in those gaps. And, um, that's a really positive indicator to us that this is somebody who, um, is sort of imagining themselves or starting to sort of lean toward this is intriguing rather than pulling away, um, which is really the signal I think we're looking for at that stage. I think it would be concerning to us to give somebody the working agreement, which is kind of a big deal to us, and have them go, okay, that's good. Which has absolutely <laughs> happened. After that discussion about the working agreement, everyone else that will work with that candidate cycles through to basically meet them and ask a few questions. Now, this isn't to assess against the attributes anymore. If the candidate has made it this far, they've probably got the right attributes. This is not about do they have our attributes or not. This is did the hiring team miss red flags or miss things that should be at least addressed and figured out before we make an offer. And, um, and so the whole process will take another couple hours as the candidate meets with um, you know, three people for 20, 30 minutes and then the next group and, and so on. Um, and then at the end, we also give one more opportunity for the candidate to then ask us questions, but then we'll debrief with each of the teams about red flags, anything they saw, any observations, how like do they have a general enthusiasm about this person in the job or how do they feel about working with this person in this job. If a candidate passes the team interview phase, the last part is the reference check. And Therospecs does a simple but brilliant thing here, one that any hiring manager could do immediately to make their lives easier. Part 12, pain-free reference checks? If we decide to make an offer to the candidate, then we would go to the reference check phase and we ask the candidate to schedule reference calls with us for the people that we've selected. So we look through their resume and pick you know, a supervisor from this job or somebody that was on the same team of you uh, from that job. And then we ask them to schedule that so it's easier for us to get through the reference phase and then we extend an offer to uh, somebody who gets all the way through everything. The process of finding a successful new hire starts well before a job gets posted somewhere for candidates to respond to. Therospecs uses two job descriptions for each new job posting, an internal one and an external one. Which brings us to part 13, two job descriptions, one great outcome. Once we 
made all the changes that we did to our hiring process, we realized we needed to start a little bit differently too. So, uh, you know, make the top of the funnel make as most uh, as much sense for us as possible. So, we started doing two different job descriptions. One is an internal job description where we talk about the specific uh, responsibilities of the role and what we think um, other characteristics we'd need to see for somebody who would be good at that. So, um, for example, for our um, inventory and logistics person. We needed somebody who could really dig into the data to find out what happened with something. Um, and the internal job description really never goes out to the rest of the world. We write a second thing, a job posting to describe that. Because when we used to share the job description as a single thing, it would be really specific about what the day-to-day -day responsibilities were and didn't say anything about who the person was that we were trying to attract. And so um, the job posting is our, it's kind of like a marketing piece to show somebody what it might look like to work for Theraspects. The way I think about it is that the uh, job description, the internal one is about who do we want? Right? What's the descriptions of the attributes that are specific to this job? Um, what are the responsibilities um, and what are the outcomes? Like what, what is this person going to actually um, produce or if we have the right person, this is, this is the kind of thing that will uh, result down the line. Um, and then the job posting is, as Annette said, a marketing piece. It's like, well, what does that person need to see to think, oh, that's me, right? And so it'll be very tailored to uh, whoever we're, like, we think we're looking for. Which brings us to part 14, where I'm going to attempt to summarize this whole hiring process in three minutes. To help me out, I'm going to put a timer on the screen and play some upbeat, funky music. Okay, here we go. The process is centered around attributes, which are ways of thinking and behaving that help someone thrive in a company's desired culture. To derive the attributes, interview current employees, asking them who thrives, either now or in the past, in the culture. As employees identify these people, ask what made them thrive, looking for specific examples, behaviors, and ways of thinking. Those patterns will help you define and focus your desired company attributes. To interview for those attributes, develop a question bank of differential situations where people with the attributes will answer one way, and those without will answer a different way, but where both answers are good answers. To get examples of answers, interview several people with varying levels of your attributes, including people identified as thriving, friends or past coworkers you enjoyed working with but who may or may not be a good fit at your current company, and others who you suspect may not have your attributes. Use excerpts from these examples to create a rubric of the types of answers that exceed, meet, or don't meet your expectations. When you're ready to open up a new position, create two job descriptions an internal one that describes the attributes most important to the role, including the company attributes and any job-specific ones, like detail-oriented for an office manager position, along with the technical skills required to do the job well. Then, create an external job posting that is marketing content to attract the right people. To create a wide front end of the hiring funnel, ask every applicant to fill out a simple logic reasoning form. Those that do well on the form are sent a written interview made up of questions selected from your question bank based on those that emphasize any attributes that are particularly important for the role as identified in the internal job description. Have multiple people score the anonymized answers from the written interview against the rubric, using plus one for exceeds expectations, zero for meets expectations, and minus one for doesn't meet expectations. Add the total up and see which applicants cluster at the top of the scores. 
Invite the top applicants to an in-person interview, where a few people on the hiring team will ask additional questions assessing the attributes, which provides an opportunity to ask follow-up questions for a deeper understanding of their thinking and past behavior. This will also be the first time to ask questions about specific job skills identified in the internal description. At this point, you'll also ask questions to assess their level of interest and capability of working in your company's unique culture, as Therispex did when asking applicants for their thoughts on the working agreement. Debrief the results to look for patterns in the interviews. The top applicant or two will then be invited to a team interview, which is a chance for everyone who might work with the applicant to get to know them and do a last check for red flags. If everyone agrees to extend an offer, ask the applicant to schedule a reference check for you with the few people you indicate. If the reference checks are good, extend an offer. Part 15, an example of this process working well. Now, we wouldn't be sharing the story of Therisbeck's hiring process if it wasn't working well for them. So we asked them to share a recent example of using this process that gave them particularly good results. Hart shared the most recent use of the process, how they found and hired someone they never would have hired using the old approach. We were hiring for our now office manager, and um, I actually made a separate post on uh, social media that was really just about how we treat our people and that we actually help people in the world. So it was a very human-centric post. And that was seen by a friend of mine who inquired about the job and said that, that he had a friend. And then after I told him a little about the job, he said, well, the friend's my wife, um, um, which I thought was a, a interesting intro, right? Because it's, um, uh, it's about the way we work was really the thing that first uh, sparked interest in anybody. But then we ran her through all of the, the, um, the steps and she does not have a background. It looks anything like office manager. Um, and, but she was interested in the change. We really uh, described it to her and after, and she really did well on all of these different steps. And so this is one of those places where one of the unseen benefits that we weren't really going for is this idea of the dark horse candidate. Somebody who you might look at their resume and be like, oh, they're underqualified or overqualified or sideways qualified, right? Um, but they're interested in the job and they've got all these attributes and, and um, really do want to be part of what we do and really want to do the thing that we've described. Um, and some of our best hires, including her, have been just like that. So this recent office manager hire is a good example of how the attributes matter more to us than the skills. It's not that the skills don't matter. For example, in the office manager hire, we knew they had to have financial literacy because they're gonna be doing some basic bookkeeping and there are other things like um, we prepare financial statements and projections and budgets and things, um, but it isn't heavily on that person to do that. They still have to be comfortable with it. And so uh, even though her direct experience had nothing at all to do with what we would have said, she did have a background that had a lot to do with finance. And so um, she would not have been obvious to us. We wouldn't have looked at her resume and thought she would want to do this job, but she wanted to do the job and she had all of our attributes. And so it turned out that having a growth mindset in this case means you can learn how to do almost anything if you know, if the things line up attribute wise. And it helps us break that link between like the skills that somebody needs to have and the experience they had before. Because if we're really specific on that internal job description about 
well, what do they already need to know how to do? Um, because it's, it's very specific. Um, then we can look for that skill, even if they didn't do this kind of job in the past. We've shared Theraspect's process as it exists today, and it's a pretty fleshed out model, one that they've tested in their context and is working well. We were curious what advice Hart and Annette would have for someone that was interested in this approach, but wasn't sure where to start. Hart and Annette have spent years iterating on the process to get where they are today. Would another company need to spend that much time to get the same benefit? Which brings us to part 16, where should we start? I would start where the where you have the most pain because it doesn't really matter what order you do these steps in. We didn't start, you know, at the beginning and uh, go all the way through each of the stages of our interview. We started kind of in the middle and then worked our way out from both sides. So um, start wherever you think you have any uh, movement to make. Yeah, I'd say like as an example, if if you're problem is what really was the driving force behind us. Like, why are we not finding people who are successful in our organization? Then I think starting with the attributes and the discussion about, well, what attributes do we need? Who's been successful and so on will bring you the most value because that's going to help with that. If the problem is that um, right now you've got an incredibly labor intense process and you're getting good people and you like your hires, um, maybe start with the uh, written interview and the rubric because um, that really helped accelerate things um, along lines. Um, and if you don't know where else to start, I think starting even just with the splitting of the job description and the job posting was almost revelatory to us in like how different they ended up reading and the, the value that they brought. And that's a tiny thing or it's a very easy thing to add to basically any hiring process that you already do. And so that would also be um, a, good, a good first step. We also asked Hart and Annette what people might get wrong when adopting this process. And we're calling this part 17, where might we screw up? And one thing to be careful of um, is thinking you're eliminating bias without eliminating it. Um, you know, picking people based on preferences that you can't articulate um, or things that are not relevant to the job that you're trying to hire for. Um, I mean, the big mistake that people make is hiring people they like or people that are like them instead of looking for somebody who has a skill set that you need in the whole blend of skills that you need in your whole company. And of course, we don't have any illusions that we've eliminated all bias from our process, right? Um, uh, so one of the things that we're always trying to do is after we hire somebody is talk about how do the questions go and, and are we, you know, um, is there anything else that we might need to address just so that at least we're aware of that? Because it's like bias is not something you beat, it's something you fight forever. And so I think that having that attitude um, is, is, um, is a big part of that. Another mistake that would be really common is what we talked about some earlier, which is um, coming up with attributes that are, you know, motherhood and apple pie, right? Everybody would want this thing. And um, that's not going to help you select between people who look like good candidates on paper um, and aren't. So what you really want to do is try to think about, well, is this really about working here um, and could somebody without that be awesome somewhere else and be the right fit somewhere else and um, otherwise I think it's really easy to come up with a list of attributes which are just a wish list of you know superpowers um, and I, I and that's just not going to be helpful because um, you're going to continue to look for um, somebody who uh, may either doesn't exist or um, you won't know whether they uh, actually have what it takes for you and your 
When you have to narrow it down. I mean, I think we started out with probably a list of 10 things that we wanted, but that was too many things. Like you, you can't have everything at the top of your list. So we really worked hard to get it down to five and then four uh, because we thought that was a number that we could really get at different angles around to see if we were seeing what we needed to see and not just what we wanted to see. And that's also like, and even that 10 was after we had already boiled down a lot of our observations. Um, and so we got to four by um, uh, both seeing patterns among things that were in that longer list and saying, well, I actually think that the root of both of these things is this thing. Um, but sometimes we just have to say, you know, I, that thing is great. I don't think it's actually key to whether somebody has been successful here or not. And I think that somebody without that attribute, right, and, and really trying um, in that uh, designer way, right, the, the list is correct, not when you can't think of anything else to add, but when there's nothing else you could possibly take away. I think another place that, that we have started to fall down and then caught ourselves most of the time is um, coming up with a new question and then just making up answers ourselves like and, and deciding what the, the rubric is going to be. And every time we do that, we get questions or answers back that we're, we don't know how to score or doesn't know how it fits. Um, and so um, sometimes we still do that, but we're just very aware that this is a new question. and. Um, if all the answers come back weird and we don't know how, what to do with it, that's okay because basically it's it's the um, it's the test question in this interview, right, or something like that. Um, but when we talk to a lot of other people, that one of the things that sort of seems to be an instinct is, oh well, yeah, I'll just like we know what the answers to this would be, but you don't really, right? Um, and and just getting even a few examples of real people who don't know what you're looking for um, to answer the question makes an enormous difference in thinking about what are going to be answers that are going to uh, be helpful for us. When Hart started Theraspects, his goal was to build an organization that was human-centric, one that helped people thrive, grow, and make a meaningful contribution through their work. And it's been hard, like really difficult. Both Hart and Annette have spent long hours struggling to make it work, and in a really soul-searching way, wondering whether it was worth it or even possible. We ask them why they've stuck with it when it's so hard, and their answers are powerful. Which brings us to the final part, part 18. Why is humanizing work worth it? Well, for me, the humanizing work thing is, is hard, but the reason it's worth it is because not only is it the kind of company I want to work in, the kind of environment that I want to work in, but I want to work around people who also value that value the engagement and um, contribution of everybody and not just a handful of people. It's important to me, even though it's a lot of effort. The truth is that I don't always think it's worth it. Um, I have, we talked earlier about the moment of, well, if we can't hire people, we can't scale, is this even possible? Should we just give up and go back to command and control? Um, and that was not an isolated incident. This is hard enough that I question it pretty regularly. Like, is this is this realistic? Is this worth it? Is is um, is what we're doing going to make a difference beyond Theraspects, right? Like beyond our ability to deliver results for our customers and and, and, and other stakeholders and that kind of thinking. Um, but I keep coming back to um, 
we have enough evidence, like we have enough observation right now on the ground with the way we work right now with our people. Um, this is powerful stuff. Like the team we have right now um, impresses us regularly and surprises us regularly and is a joy to work with regularly. Even as what we need to put in feels onerous to the point where we couldn't possibly continue, or I feel like I'm going to break as a leader, as I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. Um, I can see so clearly that we are able to navigate things that are happening in the world better than we would if we didn't work this way. And so I can see the results happening already. And even more, I can see that the people we work with bring something to work that I've never had on a whole team where I look around and everybody's done that. Some, like There's always like that person and that person really bring an extra thing. They're really engaged and leaning in. But I think everybody on the team shows that. And it, it totally transforms the way it feels to show up at work or to tackle a problem or when something scary is happening and I can not communicate some vague thing, but say, this is the situation. This is what's going on. Um, this is what's happening with our finances or this is what's happening with our supply chain. Or, this is what's happening with inflation or this is what, right. And, and know that the people that were, that, that I'm going to get back engagement. Well, how can we solve this problem? What can we do about it? What can I do? Um, how could I make a change? How can we do this? The teams are going to have conversations that are totally separate from me. And so I can see that happening. And so like, we can see that we're getting both better business results, which are very difficult to see in the moment to moment, because it just looks like we're spending more energy and effort. It's only when you have to zoom out and you see what happens, like, well, what would have happened if there was this shock? And we had a command and control and only one brain was operating. And I didn't think of that thing that we ended up doing. Right. And so it takes these shocks to see what actually is better. But even beyond that, like I have a, I have a pretty deep life purpose that I was thinking about, well, what is the meaning of why I'm here, what I'm trying to do? And the only thing I came up with that made any sense to me was to try to maximize net human happiness. And that could be a whole bunch of people a little bit or a few people a lot, but we spend a tremendous amount of our time at work. And the fact that most people come to work and are disengaged with what they're doing and don't have the ability to actually give of themselves and have that be appreciated and valued is one of the biggest losses that humanity has right now. It's tragic. And if we could harness all of the humanity that we all have to bring so that we're all working on things that are meaningful, we can feel the purpose of, that we understand how we contribute. I think if that happened, we could solve all the other problems. And so, I know I show up and keep struggling at this and it is, it's a struggle. I keep struggling at it because it would be worth it to just help that happen a little bit.
If you enjoyed this episode and want more content like this, the best thing you can do is subscribe to the podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also love it if you shared the podcast with friends, family, and coworkers who you think might benefit from learning more about how to make work more fit for humans and humans more capable of doing great work. If you want help humanizing your work, you can find out more about our products and services at humanizingwork.com. We spend so much of our lives working, so let's make that investment meaningful for us and for all the people connected to it.